Father, we do thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for minds that can comprehend it by your spirit, and hearts that can hold it in memory by your grace. And we pray that you'd write your word in our hearts, O Lord, that you would inscribe it there deeply, and that, Lord, having hidden your word in our hearts, we would then live for you and not sin against you, that we would bring you honor and glory, and we would walk in the freedom that you have purchased for us in Christ your Son. We pray even now you set us free by your word this morning. You'd instruct us and help us and build us up in the most holy faith. Oh, Father, speak to us, we pray. We believe you speak through your book. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you need a Bible this morning, I see a couple of brothers that are prepared to sort of pass them out. Just raise your hands and uh, we'll bring you one. So if you need a Bible this morning, uh, just raise your hands there. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that one with you as our Mother's Day gift to you, whether you're a mother or not. Uh, take, take that and, uh, and read that and commit that to uh, your heart and your memory and to good living. It's easier to free a man than it is for the man to live free. Last week we heard of the release of over 80 young girls, Chibok girls in Nigeria, who had been captured by Boko Haram. They're now free. Amen. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. But now they'll have to learn how to live free, having been captors and tormented by their captivity. I think for a moment, will that be easy for them and their families? When Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he effectively freed slaves in the South. He freed them moneyless into a moneyed economy. And it took a while for news to reach the slaves. It took a bit longer for the war to be ended. Some say it's still going on. And it took even longer for slaves and descendants of slaves to learn to live with a freedom that for 300 years they had dreamed about. Well, think of the children of Israel. After 400 years of bondage in Egypt, God freed them through his servant Moses but simply leaving Egypt was not the same thing as living free. It would take centuries more to get Egypt out of the Israelites and to get godliness into his people. It's easier to free a man than for a man to live free. Religious freedom is a lot like this natural freedom. With a pen, government can grant freedom of religion and freedom to worship to its citizens. But it may take a lifetime to learn how to live in that freedom, especially if the free person keeps looking to the law that freed them rather than the life of freedom. The same is true of Christians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, we come to consider for a second part this theme of religious freedom, the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at these four verses, I want to suggest that the main point of the sermon in the text is this. The free Christian looks to Christ 
not to rules. The free Christian, which is another way of saying the true Christian, looks to Christ and not rules. That's how he maintains his freedom and enjoys it. If you're taking notes, I want to give us three thoughts here to sort of hang our, our attention on. The first point would be this. Christ is your life. Christ is your life. So you are dead to the world. So you are dead to the world, verse 20. Second point is Christ is your Lord. Christ is your Lord. So do not follow the world's rules. So do not follow the world's rules. That's verses 21 and 22. Then number three, Christ is your wisdom. Christ is your wisdom. So do not fall for apparent substitutes. Do not fall for apparent substitutes. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. First thing, Christ is your life, so you're dead to the world. Those verse 20 begins with that conditional statement, if. The second half of the sentence depends upon the first half being true. If you, with Christ, you die to the elemental spirits of the world. As you know, Paul has throughout this letter been talking about our union with Christ, how it is that spiritually the Christian's life is hid in Christ and Christ is in them, how we live through Christ vicariously by faith. Our spiritual union with Christ means that everything that Christ has done or suffered has also spiritually happened to the Christian through faith. So look back up in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. His fullness, Christ's fullness, becomes our fullness. See there? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. His circumcision becomes our circumcision. See that there in verse 11? So in the same way that Christ satisfies all the righteousness of the law in him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, his burial and resurrection have become our burial and resurrection. Notice there in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, it should follow that if we have been buried with Christ by faith, that means we must have died with Christ by that same faith. That's why Paul assumes in verse 20 the Christian's death with Jesus. And he begins the sentence with, if with Christ you have died. Now, specifically, with Christ, the Christian has died to the elemental spirits of the world. You see that phrase there in verse 20? We first saw it back in verse 8. 
It's that phrase that could either mean the sort of basic building blocks of the world, its culture, its values, its system, or it could be referring to the spirits behind the world system, the fallen angels and the fallen demons. It really doesn't matter much. It's all of one piece. This world system operates according to those fallen angels, those demons who, who sort of stand behind the scenes and manipulate us. Paul says here, the Bible teaches us that we have died to all of that if we have died with Christ. The Christian who is dead with Christ is dead to the world and dead to the principalities and powers that run this world. What does that mean? What does it mean to be dead to the world? I know you feel very much alive this morning. But spiritually, if we're Christ, we have died to the world. I was thinking about this this weekend. It's prompted to think of my grandmother. We called her Mama Lucy. She died when I was about 10. And I had to take a moment because I, I realized that that was like 37 years ago. It's like, whoa, bro, you're closer to heaven than you ever been. And I thought about Mama Lucy and um, she was a tough old bird. And she had a very simple but solid faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We often catch her having her little talk with Jesus and humming her prayers and reading her Bible, and just solid Christian. She died almost 40 years ago. Now, since that time, the IRS have collected no taxes from my grandmother. Since that time, Congress has passed no laws that affect my grandmother. Since that time, the world has spun and done what it does on its axis, and men have gone on about their business, and none of it has touched, influenced, controlled, bothered, enticed, interested my grandmother. This world is dead to her. She's dead to this world. And so it is with the Christian. To be dead to the world and united to Christ means that the values, the culture, the ideas, the, the, the entertainments, the joys, the, as we'll see in a moment, the rules of this world, which are contrary to Christ, they have no hold on you. They don't call out to you. They don't lure you. They don't beckon you. They don't influence you. They're not how you sort of organize your lives. You don't organize your spiritual life by it. You don't organize your practical life by it. The way the world thinks and the way the world behaves is dead to you and you to it. It gives you no life, and you seek no life in it. The Bible is teaching us that when we died with Christ, ipso facto, as a matter of dying with Christ, we died to the elemental spirits of the world, too. We died to this system and its pull upon us. Love the way one commentator puts it. He says, we are under no obligation to any set of principles, any spiritual powers, or any earthly teacher beyond the allegiance that we already owe to Christ. See, when we became Christians, a remarkable thing happened. We were once dead to God and alive to the world. But now in Christ, we are alive to God and dead to the world. That's the reversal that Christ has worked in us. And the question becomes, beloved, have you died with Christ? 
Have you died with Christ? And those of you who are not yet Christians, you, you must die with him and you must be raised with him. And this may sound strange, but let me try to explain it to you. On the cross, in love, Jesus Christ took your place. He came into the world in a human body just like our own. And he came with this singular purpose, this one main goal. To obey the Father's perfect law and to die as a sacrifice for us imperfect people. We had sinned against God and God was angry with us and God was righteously angry with us because our sins were against him. And he had already told the world that if we sinned, that he would, he would judge us, that the penalty of our sin would be death. And, and that death is not just physical death, but, but a spiritual death as well, to be separated from God for all of eternity, to receive the just penalty of our sin. And we were all in danger of that judgment, and, and God did something about it. In his great love, he sent his son into the world, and Christ came into the world, obeyed the Father, as we've said, and died on the cross in our place, as we've said, so that he might turn the Father's anger away from us, and God's righteous judgment be satisfied in his death. And so he died for you and for me. And to prove that his death was effective and sufficient, God the Father raised him from the grave. Raised him from the grave, accepting his sacrifice. And, and now God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins. That means to turn away from sin, to turn away from living a life contrary to God, to turn really away from the elemental principles of the world, and now to live a life of faith, trusting that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ did atone for your sins, and that Jesus Christ is your Lord believing that everything that Jesus promised in terms of forgiveness and righteousness with God, in terms of adoption into God's family and eternal life, that everything that he promised is yours by faith in him. This is how you die to the world and live to God. It's by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. Beloved, have you died with Christ yet? Have you died to the world and been raised in new life in God? we like nothing more than to help you understand this and more than that, to help you embrace this, believe this, and live by this. So don't leave today without talking with me after the service or the Christian family member, friend who brought you. Uh, grab somebody who looks like they know their way around the Bible and, 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 and we will help you understand this. This is the most important message in the universe, that God has loved you and given his son for you, that you might be forgiven of sin and live with him forever in his love. Receive this message. And Christian, there's a question here in verse 20 for us too, just from this conditional clause. How seriously do you and I take our death with Christ? How seriously do we take that death? Do we take it so seriously that we indeed count ourselves dead to the world? Is that a new thought for us? Have we not thought about that for a long time? 
See, in order for our union with Christ to make us free and in order for us to live in this freedom, we must first think, we must first think, we must first think ourselves united to Christ and dead with Christ. We must regard ourselves as dead with Christ and alive to God. This is what Paul means when he writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, far be it excuse me, from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, there's a threefold crucifixion. Christ is crucified on the cross, and in his crucifixion on the cross, he crucifies the world to the Christian, and he crucifies the Christian to the world. Do we think this way? Or are we all too alive to the world? All too interested? All too tempted to think the things of the world are permanent rather than passing away. All too tempted to think the things of the world are ultimate rather than, at best, penultimate. Our minds, as Colossians 3, 1 to 4 teaches, set on things below or things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christian, what is your boast? And what do you brag? Is it anything in this world besides Christ? Perhaps your children? Perhaps your car at home? Perhaps your spouse or money? If we boast in anything but Christ, then we boast in the world, and the world is not crucified to us. We're in danger of being enslaved by it. But if we count ourselves dead in Christ, then the world has no hold on us. You see, free Christian living begins with thinking rightly about ourselves, that we are united to Christ. And in this case, we are therefore dead then to the world. Christ is your life. So you are dead to the world. That's the first step in Christian freedom. Point number two, Christ is your Lord. So do not follow the world's rules. That's what we gather from verses 21 and 22. Let's read verse 20 to 22. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. If we die with Christ, we are dead to the world, then certain other truths follow along behind it, don't it? Here's the first one. We are not alive in the world. We've already been saying that. But notice quickly the second phrase in verse 20. Why? As if you are still alive in the world. There's something strange about the Christian who behaves like they're alive in the world. The one who dies with Christ cannot begin with the assumption that they're alive in the world. It makes, it makes no sense. It's illogical at the start. And so any place where we can trace some thinking in our minds that begins with the assumption that we are alive to the world and living for this world, we may be sure that our thinking there is sub-Christian. That we need to pluck that up and out of the mind and insert this truth that our lives are hidden in Christ with God. We are not alive in the world. Here's another truth that follows from that assumption. The world's rules are not ours. If we are free Christians, we cannot submit ourselves to the world's religious rules. It's amazing when you think about it. But all of the world's religions, in some way, sort of major on rules. Jews only eat kosher. Muslims do not touch pork or alcohol. 
unless they're selling it. <laughs> Mormons do not drink uh, facts. Mormons, <laughs> Mormons do not drink tea or coffee. I, I don't know why. Buddhists, well, Buddhists won't sleep on luxurious beds, handle money, eat food after midday, enjoy entertainment, wear jewelry or perfume. Roman Catholics give up various things during Lent. As one commentator put it, this mentality is so pervasive that many people automatically assume that any religion is basically about going without pleasures and imposing strict rules on ourselves. And perhaps you're new to Christianity and you're thinking about Christianity that way too. Perhaps you see so many religions emphasizing rules all over the place and and you come to think that basically Christianity is just another version of those same rules. I, I understand why you might think that, but you'd be wrong. In Colossae, in the letter that we're studying, the false teachers there had their own rules. You see back in verse 16 and 17, there were rules about uh, what you could eat and drink and on what religious holidays you could celebrate, what festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. They developed all of these rules, but now notice something in verse 21. They go beyond those rules to do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's not that you can't eat pork, you can't even, you can't even taste it, right? It's, it's not that you can't um, sort of in, have pleasure of any sort, you, you, can't, you can't touch it. The word touch there Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to talk about the pleasure between a husband and his wife. So these, these are folks who are, who are not only got rules, but they got fences for their rules. And this is the way legalists often think. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. They're regulating diet, regulating pleasure. But here's the striking thing for the Christian. None of those rules matter to the person who's dead to them. None of them matter to the person who is dead to them. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes there, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Christ is your Lord. You have received him. Now you walk or commune with him. You, you follow with him in a spiritual relationship not by worldly religious rules. Amen. We walk with the living Savior and talk with Him and enjoy Him and delight in Him. And just using those words should be a clue as to how contrary Christianity is to this kind of legalism that's in Colossae. They're saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, meaning have no pleasure, have no enjoyment. But Christ, when he calls us to follow him, he says things like this, that he is the pearl of great price. Go sell everything and come have him. He tells us for the joy that, was, uh, that a man had at finding treasure in a field. Notice, for the joy that man sold everything he had, bought that field so that he could enjoy himself. When Christ holds himself out to us, he holds out joy to us. He holds out pleasure to us. He holds out true and lasting and holy pleasure to us. He says, come delight yourself in me. and Watch me fill your soul with gladness. He doesn't offer you a hundred rules. 
He doesn't offer you a, a million ways to bind your life. No, he offers you himself. And that, beloved, is your satisfaction. Christ is your Lord, so we don't submit to the rules of the world. And notice the third thing about these rules. These rules are, these rules are perishing. You see that there in that parenthetical statement, verse 22? They all perish as they are used. Now we've got to ask ourselves some question. How can eternal life be accomplished through temporary things? We cannot build for eternity by investing in perishable things. What does the Lord say in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17? If you want to, you can turn there with me. Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, the Lord is talking to the Pharisees there. They are people just like these teachers in Colossae who cared a great deal about their rules and, and, and missed the whole point of a relationship with Christ. And they're on and on about washing your hands before you have dinner. And the Lord says this in verse 17, Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is expelled? The Lord gives them a quick, you know, anatomy lesson. Now, what matters is not the diet. What truly matters is the heart. And this is what the Lord goes on to say there. He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Do you see? Well, religion gets it backwards. Worldly religion says what goes into your body, what goes into your mouth, is, is what makes you clean or unclean. Christ says, no, actually, what comes out of your mouth is what makes you clean or unclean because it comes out of your heart. Those words you spoke, they didn't come from nowhere. They came from your heart. That, that feeling of hatred, they didn't come from nowhere. It came from your heart. The envy, the covetousness, the lust, all those things that, that you seem not to be able to escape is not because you ate pork, is not because you went to this festival, is not because you bought Beyonce's last album, though that might have contributed. <laughs> that might have contributed. Fundamentally, you got a heart problem. We all do. Part of what it means to be a fallen sinner is our hearts conspire against our own spiritual good. And this is why the Bible says we need a new heart. We've got to have a transplant. And this is the great promise of the gospel, that God gives us a new heart through his son, Jesus Christ. A heart not with these defilements written on it, but a heart that has his law written on it. And out of this new heart spring these rivers of life. Out of this new heart come now a living for God and a turning away from sin. No, the world gets it backwards. They think what goes in defiles. It's what comes out that defiles, which is why we need a miracle to be saved. We need to be born again. So, beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I'm trying to suggest to you is you can't fix yourself. I don't say that to discourage you. In fact, I say it to encourage you to take one particular decisive action. You may be under the impression that if you do enough right things, you can fix that thing that bothers you. That if you obey enough of the right rules, then you can correct that problem behavior that we call sin. 
And beloved, what I'm trying to suggest to you is that's well intended, but it's wrong. It's why you can't shake it. And it's why if you get rid of one thing, there seems to be another thing. What, what we all have needed, and some of us have received by God's grace, what we all have needed actually is to be made new. Completely. This is why the Bible uses language like being born again. To symbolize what God does for sinners. Sinners like me and like you. What God does for sinners. Broken people who can't escape their brokenness. He makes us new when we come to him. He cleanses us within by his spirit and his grace. And he gives us this new heart we've been talking about. And we begin to live new lives, redeemed lives by his grace. God has to do that to you. You can't do it for yourself. The one decisive action now I want to call you to then is to confess your sins to God to call upon his name and ask him to make you new. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him as your savior and call upon God to do that deep heart work that you can't reach. It's the only way to change. And if you don't change this way, the Bible says you will die in your sins. And to die in your sin is to meet God as your judge. Don't do that. Come to God as your Savior, as your Lord, who loves you, and receive this gift of eternal life. These rules will not save you. Only Christ can. Which brings us to a fourth thing that we want to say about these rules. These rules do not come from God. You see it there? They are according to human precepts and teachings. These are the ideas of men, not of God. And rules that do not come from God cannot lead to God. It's that simple. This is why all religions don't lead to God, beloved. It's popular in our day to suggest that all religions lead to God. No, all religions lead back to man. They lead back to his rules and to his wisdom. Because all of the other religions are, are made up by man and not by God. They base themselves on human precepts and teachings. They use the language of, of verse 22 there. Think about it. Islam depends upon Muhammad. Buddhism depends upon the Buddha. Mormonism depends upon Joseph Smith. And on and on it goes. All these religions trace themselves back to some founding, to some origin, and some man who had a great idea about what God must be like. Only Christianity traces itself back to God coming, saying, here I am. This is me. This is what I'm like. No, we would not know God except that God came down to us. We will not climb to God by philosophy. We will not climb to God by wisdom. We will not in some quiet cloister and study sort of arrive at a eureka moment where we comprehend and apprehend God in his nature. No, if we would know him, he must tell us what he's like. And he has told us what he's like in Jesus, his son. And in his word, that's where we meet God and understand him. This is where we receive from God his ways and knowledge of his ways. And as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that as the King James says, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work or competent for every good work. It's by this book, beloved 
that we get to know the mind of God and how he would have us live, what he is like and what he requires of us. There is no knowing God truly and savingly apart from what God has said in his word. And so these man-made rules which come not from God are of no value to us. They are no good to us who are dead to the world. The word is our life. Not the word of men, but the word of God. And when we cling to this word and submit to it, then we begin to learn to live as free people. So, applications. Christian, think hard about your Christian life. Let me ask you three questions. Is your Christian life and my Christian life determined mainly by rules of religion or by fellowship with Jesus? Is your Christian life determined mainly by rules of religion or by fellowship with Jesus? Secondly, do you find yourself drawn to God's freedom or to man-made regulations? Do you find yourself drawn as a Christian deeper into God's freedom in Christ or do you find yourself drawn to man-made regulations? And number three, are you still acting as if you are alive in the world or are you daily living as though you have died with Christ? Are we still acting as though we are alive in the world or daily living as though we have died with Christ? Christ is your life, so you're dead to the world. Christ is your Lord, so you do not submit to the world's rules, but to Christ. And number three, Christ is your wisdom, so do not fall for substitutes. Apparently, the false teachers in Colossae made a big deal about the wisdom they were supposed to have. God wants us to know that human wisdom cannot compare to his wisdom. The Bible tells us that we can find God's wisdom. He's hidden it in a particular place. He's like pointing neon signs to where he has hidden his wisdom. Look back in Colossians 2, verse 3. Verse 3 there, Paul mentions, uh, or at the end of verse 2, Paul mentions that this mystery, which is Christ, then what does he say? In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's wisdom is hidden in Christ. And so if we would have God's wisdom, we must come to Christ. And there is no discovery of God's wisdom unless we are digging into Christ. And because Christ is our wisdom from God, then we should not fall for things that seem wise but aren't. So look at verse 23. He says there, these indeed, referring to the religious rules, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Many people end up living as slaves to religious rules because the rules have an appearance of wisdom. They look wise. They look right. I wonder if you've noticed the great contrast between verses 16 and 19 and verses 20 to 23. In verses 16 and 19, Paul was addressing kind of the, the false teachers out there and their attempt to impose a kind of slavery on the church. In verses 20 to 23, he's talking about the problems in us and our compliance with slavery. 
are seeking out these rules rather than Christ. And one of the reasons we do that is because they, they look really wise to us. In the Cayman Islands, you got chickens running all over the island. I don't know who fall, first brought that rooster to the island but, and let him free, but that rascal been busy, man. He's just <laughs> chickens and roosters everywhere, man. And, you know, uh, I, I learned in my years that there's this sense in which you want to follow the chickens, right? Because whenever there's a hurricane coming, the chickens just disappear. I don't, I don't know where they go, but they hide out. The storm come through, and right after the storm come through, they come back out pecking, man. They just come back out and do their thing. I'm like, where the chickens go? I'm following the chickens next time. But there's also a sense in which you don't ever want to follow the chickens. Because all they do is peck at everything shiny. You know, they just walk and they peck, and everything that looks like it might be edible or, or shiny, they, they peck, they peck, they peck. And, and Christians, we can be like that. We can hear things that sound wise. We can hear things that have the appearance of wisdom, and they go, ooh, shiny, and we start pecking and pecking and pecking, right? Beware things that appear wise, or as Paul puts it in verse 4, they are plausible arguments. They are fine-sounding. They have the ring of truth to them. Listen, all of us were born legalists. The law is our natural language. We understand rules even if we like to break them. It reminds me of a story of a little girl, a co-worker's little girl. Mom had told her not to do a certain thing and promised that the little girl would get a punishment if she did. And sure enough, it hadn't been a day, and the little girl did it anyway. And mom went to her and said, now, did I, did I not tell you this was wrong? The little girl said, yes. And mom said, did I tell you that you should never do that? The little girl said, yes. Mom said, now, didn't I tell you that you were going to get a punishment if you ever did that? Little girl said, yes, ma'am, you did. And mom, a little puzzled, said, well, why'd you do it? She said, I figured it was worth it. <laughs> and that's how many of us are. Yeah, we're a little legalists, but we decide when it's worth it to break even our own rules, don't we? And we think nothing of breaking God's rules. Right? It's our natural tendency, though, to, to want rules, to, to keep them, to apply them when it's convenient. And there are two reasons for that, beloved. Number one, it's because the world makes disciples. The world makes disciples. And it's what Romans 12, 2 tells us, that the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to the world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That squeezing us into its mold is the world's full-time, 24-7 effort at discipling us into its way of thinking. And it uses everything from our entertainment to our arts to our academic institutions to unbelieving parents to uh, wayward-believing friends who give us bad counsel. It uses everything to squeeze us into its mold. It is always trying to shape us. The world makes disciples, and it all sounds right to us. It has the appearance of wisdom, but there's another reason we like our rules. It's because of pride. We want a religion, naturally speaking, in our fallen self. It makes us feel good about ourselves. We all are like Pharisees. I mean, we keep a few good rules, and, and then we look down at others and say, thank God I'm not like this sinner. All of us have that in us. And a, a rule that we get to be good at and other people aren't so good at, oh, that just swell a head up real big, don't it? Oh, I, don't, I just, girl, I, I don't do, I'll never do that no more. I gave that up years ago. You still struggle with that? You just need to repent and fast. Some things don't come out by praying and fasting. 
you need to fast. I'll pray for you. You know what I mean? We all got that little Pharisee in us. And that loves legalistic religion because if we're good at it, it's a source of pride. And so Paul tells us now, beware of things that appear wise but aren't. And how do you know the difference? Well, you compare it to the Bible. Book, chapter, and verse in context. If God didn't say it, you're not obligated. God gives his people freedom. Now, here's the other thing about this thing. Why it appears wise to us is because it's man-centered. It's man-centered. The reason the rules appear wise is because they are, in effect, centered on us. Notice what Paul says there in verse 23, that this is self-made religion. (laughs) We make up our own religions, beloved. Rules that custom suit our preferences. And this is not only true of the cults, but it's true of us individually. I mean, the cults, you think of someone like Clarence 13X. Many of you may not know that name. Clarence 13X was a member of the Nation of Islam who got kicked out of the Nation of Islam because he didn't live by their dietary and moral rules. And you know what he did? He founded his own religion. You may know it as the 5% Nation of Islam. The 5%ers come from Clarence 13X, a man of ill repute, who decided, you know what? I'll found my own religion. And now in jails and inner cities across the country, young men and young women are swept up into this man-made religion. Why? It centers on man. It strokes the ego of man. It is fit for man in this world and requires very little of them. And not just the cults. But again, we are tempted to do it too, aren't we? Whenever we make rules from ourselves that are not according to God's word, but we try to impose those rules on others. Man-centered religion can never lead to God-centered living. It will always end with ourself. And notice here, they go on. It appears wise because it, it builds on asceticism and severity to the body. Asceticism is a false humility. Think of the Roman Catholic monks taking a vow of poverty. That's asceticism. It's a belief that through strict rules and self-denial, a person can grow in godliness. It often involves the next thing there, severity to the body. So particularly if you think of middle-aged monks and the ways in which they would beat themselves and go through extreme measures to to kind of subdue the flesh and to, to, to sort of beat out of themselves sinful desires. The idea is if you could be tough on your body and tough on your appetites, then you can get rid of those things that are displeasing to God. But notice what verse 23 says at the end. These have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, a person can make up all the rules they want. They can deny themselves all kinds of pleasures. And they can beat themselves nearly to death. But it won't help them one bit. The flesh, here refers to our sinful nature. Well, the flesh will still look to indulge itself in sin. We know this, don't we? I mean, think of all the rules we make for ourselves for losing weight and eating better. Or some of us do. You're cool for a week. You're rolling pretty good. Then what happened? The sugar started calling you. Start whispering. You start having dreams about cheesecake. <laughs> Yep. And, and, and your flesh says, uh, wait till she go to sleep, then go check the fridge. <laughs> uh, 
It's a natural example of what happens. Don't laugh loud, baby. You give people away. That's a natural example of what happens spiritually, right? The sin nature whispers to us and reminds us of, of what it wants. And even if it doesn't get what it wants, you know what your sin nature will do? Think about this. Even if you're able to keep the rules, as we were saying a moment ago, deny yourself, discipline yourself, the sin nature will say, you're so good. You have so many reasons to be proud and boastful. Just come along to you and just start turning towards sin in yet another way, taking the rules and leveraging the rules against you. So even if you're successful at man-made religion, the sin nature will simply make us Pharisees, indulging in self-righteousness. Listen, beloved, to live free, we must stay away from man-made religion altogether. Christ is our wisdom. So now we don't take any substitutes. We come back to Christ and his word, and we apply his word as it's intended in order to live as free people the way God intends. So just a couple applications to conclude. Paul is, as you know, in Colossians 2, continuing the argument that he's been going on through the entire chapter. And these verses 20 to 23 are kind of a a hinge between what he's argued previously and and what he will begin to instruct in chapter 3, where he more positively tells us how to live as a Christian. And so this might be a good place to just remind you of last week's applications. Mm, How many of you all remember last week's applications? Okay, see, Christians leak, right? You don't want to be that man who looks into the mirror and forgets what he saw, right? So I'm serving us all. Here are last week's applications in case you missed it. All right? Christian, we must be careful of our own tendency to make religious rules that keep us in the shadows rather than in the substance. And so we should ask ourselves, where am I tempted to create a custom or rule that is not about sin and then trust that rule as if it makes me holy? Where am I tempted to make some rules that aren't about God saying in his word, thou shalt not, that aren't about sin, but then trust those rules as if they make me holy. It's fine for us to apply God's word to our lives in ways specific to our own personal lives and and keep those standards for ourselves. In fact, it's not only fine, it's good and necessary, but we are are straying from Christ if we begin to trust those rules or to impose them on others. If we do that, then we're binding other people to our rules and not to Christ. We're sleeping, slipping into that kind of judging of others that verse 16 made reference to. And remember, we got two applications from last week. How do we grow in this freedom? How do we enjoy this freedom? Remain connected with the head, which is Christ, and remain connected with the body, which is the church. And we can do both of those things by, number one, practicing the New Testament one another's. All the New Testament calls us to in terms of love one another, serve one another, so on and so forth, that is sort of God's job description for his church, for building our community together. Let us commit ourselves to those things, and then we will discover both the grace of God that grows us and the grace of God that gives us freedom. And number two, let us practice the means of grace with the church family. Again, means of grace is just a historic Christian term to refer to things like reading the Bible together, praying together, uh, hearing the Word of God preached together, and as we'll do in a moment, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. When we come to the Supper as a family, God is supplying to us grace. And as we recall Christ's death with, for us and our death with Him, we discover again His forgiveness, His freedom, 
and his love. So let us come to the means of grace and receive there from our Lord what we need to grow and live free. Lord, remind us that all of our rules and activities are not substitutes for Christ. Even if we rightly say, I want to meet with the Lord in his word every day, don't make that a rule. Make that a joyful privilege to commune with Jesus. Then by God's grace, we will grow together in the freedom and the joy that he gives. Beloved, Christ is your life. So think of yourself as dead to the world. Christ is your Lord. So do not submit to the world's rules. And Christ is your wisdom. So do not fall for substitutes. These, beloved, are the first three steps in learning to live as free Christians. This, beloved, is why Christ and the freedom he gives is such a great treasure to us all. Let us enjoy it as we enjoy our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We praise you that we have been freed from the law of sin and death. Indeed, we have been freed from the regulations of this world. We praise you, Lord, that we have been freed not to run off in recklessness and abandon, but freed to worship you truly, to know you deeply to come to you frequently, and to delight ourselves in you. We thank you for this freedom, and we pray that you would help us to cherish it, to hold fast to it, to let no one take it away, and not to abuse it ourselves. Grant us, O Lord, the wisdom that is in Christ, that we might live according to your word. And grant us, O Lord, to know what it is to be so united with Christ that our lives are hid with him, in you. And because that's true, help us to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. To seek those things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. That we, Lord, might be heavenly minded and free from this world. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.